Uh, we just got done singing uh, that, that refrain, where else can we go, Lord? Only you have the words of eternal life. It reminds me of um, something that Philip Yancey, he's an author, uh, said once. Uh, he just was asking, why am I a Christian? He'll ask himself that, that uh, question from time to time. I ask myself that question from time to time. I really like his answer. Uh, Philip Yancey asks, why am I a Christian? He says, well, number one, uh, lack of good alternatives, which I relate to. And second, uh, Jesus. Jesus. We're here to hear from Jesus. Uh, we're looking at Zechariah chapter 8. There uh, has been an effort to rebuild the temple. God's people had been defeated, uh, first by the Assyrians, then by the Babylonians, and then the Persians defeated the Babylonians, and the Persians sent his, uh, the people back to Jerusalem. And they're rebuilding the city, they're rebuilding the temple. The question comes, all right, listen, we've been fasting for 70 years ever since Babylon, ba- Babylon conquered uh, Jerusalem in 586 BC. We've been fasting for all these 70 years. Should we keep fasting? And, uh, and here is God's answer through Zechariah. It's an extended passage, but I ask you to stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to begin in verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit. And the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things you shall do. Speak truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask you to show us Christ, show us Jesus, show us the benefits, the blessings of the new covenant that you have come to save your people, to be with us, to forgive us, to love us, uh, to make us uh, a byword of blessing among the nations. We pray that you would do this for your glory's sake 
and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So there's, there's a lot here. Let me uh, focus on a few things. Just uh, first of all, this uh, twice, you know, the, the prophet encourages his, God's people to let your hands be strong uh, to, uh, to pursue God's work uh, with a lot of zeal. Um, there's a corollary as well uh, to let your love be strong, to love certain things. Um, and then just lastly, this promise that uh, there's going to be a, a, these seasons of joy and gladness that, uh, that are coming as a result of God's blessing. So let's zero in on just this call to let your hands be strong. And that is the uh, refrain to God's people to build the temple, right? Do you see that in verse 9? Uh, the Lord of hosts says, let your hands be strong. And then uh, you've heard these words from the prophets. Uh, put parentheses around really the middle part of that long sentence and get to the end. Let your hands be strong that the temple might be built. Uh, that's the whole purpose for why the prophet is calling God's people to be strong. Uh, to not fear. Why does God want the temple to be rebuilt? Uh, what's, what's so important about this building project? Uh, well, it's the same reason uh, God wants the temple to re- be rebuilt for the same reason that Jesus wanted the temple to be cleansed. Uh, if, uh, if you remember that account, it actually happened on at least two occasions in the life of, of Jesus. Uh, John records it uh, the first time early on in his ministry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, you know, have another episode at the end of his ministry, right after the triumphal entry, uh, where Jesus is uh, just, we don't recognize him. Uh, Jesus comes into the temple, uh, to the outer court of the Gentiles, and I think it's safe to say he just goes ballistic. Um, I want you to hear this, this description and see, tell me if you recognize this Jesus who enters the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? So what got Jesus so indignant as to um, you know, become this this unrecognizable Jesus, not gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but hot Jesus, uh, perturbed Jesus, not out of control Jesus, but definitely angry Jesus. What gets him so upset is the fact that the, all the merchants have taken over the court of the Gentiles, the money changers who are, you know, when you get off the airplane at any international airport, you've got all of the money exchange, uh, currency exchange booths. And so people are coming from all over uh, different lands, and they're coming to Jerusalem to worship, and they need to have their currency exchanged. Money changers are there. Uh, those who are selling pigeons, sacrificial animals for the temple, they are there, and they've turned the court of the Gentiles into a petting zoo. Uh, it's not going to end well uh, for some of those animals, uh, but that's this kind of chaotic scene in a place that God intended for all the nations to come and to have spiritual sanity restored to them. How can you come and meet with God if all around you are people, you know, um, shouting and jeering and trying to get you to come over? Like, think of this, the, one of those flea markets, those Middle Eastern 
flea markets, you know, everybody's kind of, everyone's selling you something. You can't meet with God in that environment. And Jesus is jealous for people to have their spiritual sanity restored, as I said, to know that God forgives sins, that a just God can be reconciled to a sinful people by the blood of an atoning sacrifice. The animals are necessary, yes, but they don't belong in the court of the Gentiles. And so Jesus is, is jealous that all the nations can come and can hear the promises of God, can hear the word of God, can meet together and worship as God's one united people. All of these are the reasons why Jesus is clearing the temple, why he's really angry that all these people are keeping the nations from being able to worship. Uh, and this is why God is speaking through Zechariah and Haggai and you know, uh, to the community back in the 5th century BC to say rebuild this temple, all right? Um, so, In verse 13, you hear again this call, let your hands be strong, fear not. Um, The Zechariah's contemporary uh, prophet Haggai is basically God's tool to say the same thing to his people. Haggai chapter 2 says, Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, fear not. So, you know, it's this message in stereo from Haggai and Zechariah because it's so important. To, to have a place where people can come and meet with God is so important. Uh, let your hands be strong is the, is the, the refrain. So, so what made me think of this image? This is the, the right hand of David, uh, Michelangelo's statue, an enormous statue that uh, still stands in Florence today. Kathy and I got to see this statue last fall. It was beautiful. It was amazing. And uh, and this statue is really famous, obviously because Michelangelo sculpted it, but, but also for a couple of other reasons. Uh, it's, it's unique in that it's not perfect. I mean, it's argue, uh, Michelangelo is arguably one of the, the best artists that ever lived, but this statue of David is different in that it's not perfect. Um, when you think of the perfect uh, man, the perfect specimen, you think of like Da Vinci's Vitruvian man, right? Now, the guy that stands like this, the drawing that Da Vinci did, and all his proportions are correct and so on. But you look at Michelangelo's David, and if you're, not, if you're not looking for it, you may not notice it at first, but if you do stand there and, and somebody were to say, hey, look at David's head, look at his hands, and you go and you go, yeah, there's something off about that. There's something not right about that. You know, like, here we are being critical of Michelangelo, right? Anyway. Um, but his head is too big, and his hand is too big. You know, this is arguably one of, like, the strongest hands in sculpture. And, and Michelangelo, uh, you know, when they try to, try to figure out why would somebody like Michelangelo not have the proportions correct and the art theorists, you know, come up with different solutions like, well, this statue is actually intended to be elevated above Florence, you know, on the roof line of, you know, some structure, some building or church perhaps, where people on the ground would be looking up, you know, four stories, six stories up in the air where illusions start to play tricks with your eyes and you've got to account for foreshortening and things like that. So, of course, that's why, you know, such an expert as Michelangelo would have done this. But regardless, you just look at this hand and you see strength. You see the, the, the tendons tight, uh, the, the, the vein popping, and this is a hand that is about to slay a giant. 
This is a hand that's about to do the Lord's work. Uh, This is a hand that reminds me of Zechariah's call. Let your hands be strong uh, to God's people as they are building this place of worship. And so the question comes to us. Are you and I, are we building the church? Are we strengthening the church? Are we uh, enabling the church to do ministry, the God's work, God's ministry uh, in our community? Are, 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 are the veins in your hands and my hands, are the tendons in our hands, are the veins popping, are the tendons tight as we do God's work, or are your hands um, not very busy at all? So we can think about this in a number of ways. Think about it at Tabernacle. You know, all of us are, are, are here. If Tabernacle's your home church, God designs each particular church to be a place where like, um, like a physical body, everything is needed. Uh, I need my toes. I need my ears. I need my eyes. I need my nose. I need my shoulders, knees, and toes. Uh, you, you all are all needed here. All of us play a part here. We're all intended to be interdependent. There's a place where each one of us should be able to say, yeah, I put my hand to that plow and my you know, veins are popping. My tendons are tight because I'm doing the work of the Lord. And if you don't have a plow to put your hands to, if you don't have a way for your you know, tendons to be tight, you need to get one. That's God's purpose for us. It's to be interconnected, interdependent as a functioning body where we build uh, and enlarge and mature and even multiply uh, the church. Uh, if you've been around Tabernacle for a while and you've struggled to plug in, I want to encourage you to keep, keep, keep trying. I mean, I mean, and we want to do what we can. You know, it's a two-way street. Uh, if you don't know yet what ministry you want to be a part of, you can see me. You can email us at office at tab-prez.org, you know, we're going to connect you with ministry leaders, but let us know what you want to do. Uh, and, and don't be content to just, you know, not, not put your hand to the plow. It's not what God has intended uh, for a healthy church. Every person, every member would have his own or her own ministry. We're all priests. We're all working together for the maturing and the multiplying of this body. So um, let me encourage you to, to uh, find that ministry. Let us know how we can connect you. And then in a broader sense, think of the capital C church, the church at large. Uh, there's people here at Tabernacle. Tabernacle's your home church, but your ministry's out there. It's not in here. And you're ministering in the name of Tabernacle or uh, on behalf of Christ uh, to our community. Uh, ministries like Young Life do this. Ministries like Comfort Care Women's Health do this. Weekday religious education and a host of others where that's where you're spending your time and your energy, and that's a good thing. And We want to we bless you and send you into our community as members who are doing ministry, right? Your veins are popping, but your plow is out there, and that's good. And then we just think of just the, the church as it continues to multiply, as it continues to grow. You know, we want to be a multiplying church. We want to build new churches. We want to see uh, new congregations established. By God's grace, you know, we were able to plant uh, Holy Cross almost 10 years ago. We want to keep planting. And we're knocking on that door and we're asking God, you know, show us where, show us when. Um, I do think before we're ready to do that, we need to see God raise up uh, more leadership, more elders, more deacons, more home group leaders, more ministry leaders, etc., uh, and, and grow us in that way and mature us in that way. But, but these are the things 
that we want the, the veins in our hands to be bulging as we pursue, as we build the church. Um, as one author uh, says and reminds us about the nature of the church, that, that there's something in the, the human nature that wants to live a life that counts. Um, you and I, we don't want to get to the end of our lives and just kind of shrug our shoulders and go, what, what was I doing? What, what was I thinking? What, what was I pursuing? What was it all for? Did I do anything of consequence? Did I do anything of permanence? Um, and when you realize that God is calling us to make your hands strong as we build the church, that that is the answer to that question. Um, one author puts it this way, that the church is the preeminent institution in all the world because it is the body of him who is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Only the church, among all institutions, will endure. Its accomplishments blazing forever when all else has passed away. You ever think about that? Of all the institutions on this planet, the church is the only one that is eternal. What are we working for? Um, Zechariah explains that when we put our hand to this plow, when we hold that hammer, when our, our hands get these calluses of ministry on them, that we will be a blessing. Um, look at verse 13. You know, uh, God's people have been unfaithful. God warned them. They ignored the warnings. God said, okay, I told you so, and they go into exile. And then he brings them back. And in verse 13, he says, And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, let your hands be strong. So the, the encouragement uh, to, to, to get to work, to build the church, is this promise, you will be a blessing, right? Um, back in the ancient world, uh, when countries, nations would go to war against one another, it was never just a, one nation against another nation. It was one God against another God or this group of gods and deities against this group of deities. Every conflict was supernatural in scope. And so when Israel fell to Assyria in the, um, in the 8th century B.C., you know, that was the Assyrian god winning. Uh, when Judah fell to the Babylonians in 586 BC, that's when uh, Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, gained victory over, you know, in their minds, over the god of the Hebrews, over Yahweh. Either, either Marduk had defeated Yahweh or Yahweh had just abandoned his people and took off and let Marduk, you know, come in and defeat Israel, defeat Judah. Either way, the outcome among the nations, the thinking is those people are cursed. Those Israelites are cursed. Those Jewish people are cursed because their God is either defeated or he's gone. And contrary-wise, you know, Marduk reigns supreme, and so the Babylonians must be blessed. That's the thinking back then. And what, what God is saying is that you will become a blessing. The nations are going to recognize that you are blessed. God tells them that they're going to, this is going to be universally acknowledged, uh, that God's people, it's going to be evident to the nations and to the, their neighbors that they are God's favored people, that God is with them. And we're going to um, see that uh, more next week, that, that, that uh, exclamation, that recognition, God is really among you. 
Um, in Malachi, you know, we, we read this, that your vine in the field will not fail uh, to bear, you know, grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all, all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the, the Lord of hosts. Um, so this is all in fulfillment of the, the old, old promise. It goes all the way back to Abraham, uh, to Genesis 12, where Ab- uh, God tells Abram, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to the nations. It's always been God's intention for his people that he would bless them, and that they would be a blessing to the nation. So it's always been God's intention that, that, that God's community, God's people would be a place that, the, that people around them would recognize, wow, there's a special favor on them. There's, a, there's a, a supernatural blessing over those people. And, you know, we experience that through the gospel. When you and I uh, realize that, wait a minute, I don't have to prove myself to God. I don't, that, that, that religion is not fundamentally about me earning my gold stars in heaven, but about a God who loved me and who came down from heaven to earth, who lived a life that I could not ever accomplish in my own strength, in that kind of beauty and righteousness and perfection, uh, lived the life I want to live but can't, and then died the death on the cross that I don't want to die but should uh, for my sin and then was raised. That God did that for us. That everybody who puts their faith in him would have their sins forgiven, would be made a new creation, would be adopted as a son or a daughter of their father in heaven, would be promised an eternal inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade and will be kept in heaven for us until that day. That those are the blessings that start to change our lives and transform us. They transform us from people that are pretty self-centered and self-righteous and proud of our accomplishments to humble, grateful, gracious people, extending the same grace, the same forgiveness, showing the, the, the humility that comes from that to one another. And the world would look and say, wow, that's, that's a blessing. We don't, we don't know what that's about. We don't understand what that's like. And so, as um, one author put it, that each church would become like a, a, a colony of the kingdom, uh, uh, put on display uh, the truths and the values and the priorities of the kingdom of God. That the, that the world around it would see that community is different because of the way that they love each other, the way that they forgive each other, and so on. So that the nations would recognize the church is blessed, and then the church would be a blessing. and would start to bless their neighbors and their, the nations around them. Where else in the world... Is anybody going to come to hear about how a sinful human being can be made right with a holy God? Where else is anybody going to come to learn about one who would die in their place and rise again from the dead so that uh, they can be made a son or daughter of the Father in heaven? There's no other religion, there's no other worldview that offers God's Son in our place. Every other worldview, every other religion is going to say, get busy, earn your gold stars, and prove yourself. So this is, the, this is where it happens, uh, and this is how the church can become a blessing to the nations. And as we you know, build and work to build the church, we let our hands be strong. Um, Zechariah's call is not only to let your hands be strong, but to let your love be strong. And this is where the blessings 
of the gospel and how they impact us begin to impact our neighbors and our nations. Uh, when you look at Zechariah verse 15, God's uh, purpose in these days is to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah and to fear not. And these are the things that you shall do. Speak truth to one another, render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Therefore, in verse 19, jump down to the last part of verse 19, therefore love truth and peace, right? So let your love be strong. Love the things that, that, that God loves. Love telling the truth. Love making peace. Um, I saw a, uh, a bumper sticker this week, uh, and I hadn't seen this one before, so it caught my attention, but it simply said, uh, what would Atticus do? <laughs> do you know who Atticus is? Do you know who that reference is? Atticus Finch uh, from To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, Harper Lee wrote uh, To Kill a Mockingbird about Atticus Finch. He's a lawyer in a small rural um, Alabama town in the 1930s. So obviously Jim Crow just has its grip on this little town. And a judge uh, you know, directs uh, Atticus, who's a lawyer, to represent a black man who's been falsely accused of sexual violence against a woman, a white woman. So you know how this is going to end. Well, Atticus takes the case, and he's just full of nobility and, and virtue and a heart for fairness. Um, he, wants, he wants to see justice done. He's, he's trying his best to, uh, to exonerate uh, his client. Uh, he's, a, he's a widower. He's got two kids at home, uh, Jem and Scout. And, uh, and, and all through the book, you see you know, Atticus uh, loving them and fathering them. I mean, Atticus Finch is arguably like one of the best dads in literature, I think is how he's been described. Um, what would Atticus do, right? I don't, know who, I don't know who was driving that car. I don't know kind of what their uh, operating principle is for life and religion and spirituality and so on, but I kind of get the sense that bumper sticker is a little bit of a, of a dig at another question similar to it. You know the, the, the Jesus question, what would Jesus do? Remember the bracelets, WWJD? Um, you know, I, I, again, I don't, I'm not going to you know, make any assumptions about the driver, but there's something about that question, what would Atticus do that feels off? Because on Atticus's best day, right, on his best day, Atticus was just a shadow of Jesus. He was just, on his best day, he was just a, a faint representation of the one who loved justice and who loved humanity and who gave himself sacrificially to not just get the innocent off, but to actually provide forgiveness for the guilty. What would Jesus do is not a trite question. It's, it's, it's a profound question. And, and so as you see this call to speak truth to one another, to render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace is this call to not just be like Atticus, but to be like Jesus and to bless our neighbors and the nation so they would see what a world looks like that isn't crooked, that, that isn't racist, that isn't corrupt, that isn't on the take. You know? The church should show them that. Um, so on the one hand, when we look at discipleship, we think about questions like, well, what would Jesus do? What would he say? How would he act? 
you know. Um, another way that we measure discipleship is, is, you know, our doctrine, our beliefs, right? I mean, that's how Christians, when we come to the Bible, we want to know what does God say? What does Jesus teach? I mean, even the skeptics recognize that Jesus is a profound moral teacher, um, you know, and, uh, and I, I would love for those who respect Jesus as a teacher to kind of consider the implications of some of those sayings, you know, that they respect. But, hey, it's, it's good that they still recognize there's profundity there. Um, so Jesus is teaching us, and we want to measure uh, our discipleship and our growth and maturity by virtue of, look, do I think what Jesus thinks? Um, what would Jesus do? And then, well, WWJT, what would Jesus teach? What would Jesus think? And so we want our thoughts to reflect the thoughts of Jesus. Not, we don't just want our, our actions to, to imitate Jesus. We want our thoughts to imitate Jesus. But you know what? You can't stop there. You can't stop there. In verse 19, Zechariah says not just to do truth and peace. And not just to think truth and peace. God tells us to love truth and peace. And so you have to ask, you have to ask the question, WWJL, what does Jesus, what would Jesus love? What would he love? And do I love the things that Jesus loves? If I'm a follower of Jesus, if I'm a disciple of Jesus, is my heart aligned with the heart of Jesus? Um, you can do truth and not love the truth. Um, you can tell the truth. You can believe, that you can believe things are, that are true without loving the truth. Uh, the devil does that. He'll say things that are true, um, he'll repeat things that are true, he'll quote Deuteronomy to Jesus, but not love the truth. And you and I are capable of the same thing, but do we love the truth? If you love the truth, it will hurt to tell a lie. It, it, it will turn your stomach to tell a lie if you love the truth. But if you don't love the truth, it's just, it's pretty pragmatic. You know, it's better if I don't lie. I won't get into trouble if I get caught or whatever. Oh, yeah, I don't want anybody to find out. I'm not like those liars. It's hardly a good motive for telling the truth. Anyway, you can do peace without loving peace. Enemies can lay down their swords. Um, they can call a detente. You know, they can do the ceasefire thing and not love peace. But it might be good for their their economy for a while, might be good for some public relations, international relations, whatever the reason is. They don't have to love peace to make peace. You and I, we have to love peace in order to be reconciled. You can't be reconciled to another human being if you don't love them, if you don't love pursuing peace. So the call here is to love the things that God loves, to love what Jesus loves, um, and one question I want to leave you uh, thinking about, very prominent question, very important question is of all the things that Jesus loves, things like truth, things like peace, uh, and you name it, all, a long, long list of things that Jesus loves, what is, what is the one thing on earth that Jesus loves the most? What is he absolutely head over heels in love with on this planet? 
heard it. Church, right? Somebody say church. The church. The church. The church? <laughs> what? The church? Really? The church? Hmm. You know, the, the world looks at the church. I mean, we, we even, we, we're, we have a very similar opinion of the church that the world does. Uh, at best, the world sort of looks at the church as just a nuisance, like a mosquito, you know. Uh, at worst, uh, the world is skeptical, suspicious of the church. The church is bad, it's harmful, and it does bad things to people. And, and, and people in the church start thinking the same way, which is crazy. Yeah, the church isn't perfect. Please, by all, by all means, let's acknowledge that the church has many, many faults. But if we are going to be disciples of Jesus, and if we're going to love what Jesus loves, what does Jesus love most on this planet? He loves the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her and cleanse her and perfect her and beautify her and you know, adorn her as his beloved bride. He absolutely loves the church as his bride. And, and the analogy continues in, in Ephesians 5. In the same way, husbands, love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Do you know who doesn't take care of their body? you know who doesn't love their body? People that are, that are self-loathing. Um, you know, there's a lot of research about eating disorders um, and self-mutilation, anorexia, bulimia, uh, cutting, all of these things. Uh, they can be multifaceted, and I'm not trying to offer something simplistic here, but it's not a stretch to say that there is a fair degree of self-loathing going on there. Hating, our, hating what my body looks like, hating, you know, how others perceive my body um, and, and all the complexity and all the pathology that gets wrapped around that axle. And the reason why people are starving themselves to death and cutting themselves is because they, they loathe themselves. And they think that other people loathe them too. Jesus loves his body and he nourishes it and cherishes it and takes care of it. And if you're part of his body, he loves you like that too. And that's going to give you traction. Any, any of you who are struggling with an eating disorder or anything where you're harming yourself, if you can latch on to that, that will help will give you traction. You, you need other help too. Don't try to win and defeat that by yourself. Use the body of Christ. Use professional resources. But look, the gospel has tremendous traction for you because Jesus loves the church the way he loves his bride, the way he loves his body. And so the question for us is, do we love the church? Do you love the church? Or have you written it off? Jesus came for
from heaven for her. He laid down his life for her. He rose from the dead for her. He's returning for her, and he will never, ever be apart from her forever. And that is his passionate love affair with the church. And I know some of you are saying, well, I can't love the church because the church has hurt me. The church is a painful place for me. And I'm in no way uh, going to suggest that you should just, you know, forget whatever you've experienced. Some of you have experienced awful things in churches. But let me just speak broadly to the general observation, right, that all of us are going to be hurt in the church at some point or another. If you stick around tabernacle long enough, guess what? You're going to get hurt. Why? Well, look at all the people around you. (laughs) We're all sinners. And what sinners do is they have this nasty little tendency to hurt each other from time to time because we aren't perfect. We're trying. We're repenting. We're trying to own our stuff. We're trying to ask forgiveness. We're trying to become better human beings the way God designed us intentionally to be. But we we aren't going to get it completely straight this side of heaven. And so if you stick around any church long enough, you're going to get hurt. But if you adopt this posture of, well, I'm going to keep the the church at arm's length. I'm not going to love the church. I'm just going to sort of tolerate the church at best or be cynical about it at worst. Is that how Jesus treated the church? Because don't we all know that the church hurt Jesus too? Right? Didn't the church reject Jesus? Didn't, Didn't the church nail Jesus to the cross? When Jesus laid down his life for her, he did not abandon her, he helped her. And his purpose was to change her, to sanctify her. And if the church has hurt you, don't reject the church. Help the church. Help her. Change her. Sanctify her. And make sure that nobody else, as much as it depends on you, gets hurt the same way you were. So that the church can be a healthier place to grow because of you. Because of you. This is God's call for us to to let your love be strong. Uh, A corollary to that is, hey, you know what? Um, There's some things that we're called to hate. Uh, We look at, uh, in verses 17, don't devise evil in your heart against one another. Love no false oath. For all these things I hate, uh, declares the Lord. Uh, And we don't have time to go into that, but, you know, the the whole thinking that you should hate hate uh, has some problems with it. Because what that leads to is an entire society that's at, you know, in the face of the, the works that Jesus hates, um, uh, that, that those things would be met with only indifference. Can you imagine the, the spirit of Jesus who in Revelation 2 says, I have this, um, yet, yet you have this. You hate the works, the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate a little bit of... Um, you know, debate over what those works were, but we know that there are certain things that Jesus does not approve of. In fact, he says he hates. And we've already mentioned a couple of them this morning. Things like racism, uh, things like corruption, uh, things like abortion, things like genocide, things like human trafficking. Are we not supposed to hate those things, right? Well, moving on to joy and gladness. Let's, Let's conclude there. Look at verse 19. This says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fifth, the seventh, the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Uh, I went for a run yesterday morning um, and the neighborhood next to us is Emerald Hills and they were having their annual 
garage sale, I think it's the second Saturday in May every year. And so like every third or fourth house has all of their <clears throat> junk on their, on their driveway. And there's just car after car and, and van and truck and so on, you know, congesting Emerald Hills uh, as they're moving along, looking, doing their, their bargain hunting. And uh, what was promising to be a beautiful May morning jog uh, through my neighborhood uh, turned into sort of this life or death run for my life uh, from these distracted drivers who were doing this the whole time, you know, looking for their bargains instead of looking at the road and the jogger in front of them. Um, so, but here's the thing, as I was wrapping up my run, I don't run fast, I run slow enough that I actually heard this other couple who were walking along um, and she says something like, you know, this is great, but I just wish they could find some central place uh, to, have, to put all this stuff so that we don't have to go, you know, house to house or whatever. And I thought, you know, I get it. I'm thinking to myself, but that, that kind of, like, I think she's missing the point. <laughs> I think she's missing the point of an entire neighborhood that had the foresight to go ahead and establish one day, right, where everybody's going to put all their <clears throat> junk out and they can do their bargain hunting and it's so convenient, right? And then, you know, okay, you've got to go two or three houses before you get to that next, you know, um, glory hole for that bargain. But, uh, you know, oh man, I got to go another three houses. What a drag. Uh, but don't we get like that? Isn't that us? I mean, God pours out these seasons of joy and gladness. And by definition, a season of joy and gladness is, has a beginning, time, beginning point and an ending point. And then after that ending point, uh, there's a season where there's not joy and gladness. A time. A fallow time. A trough. Maybe of pain and sadness. And then there'll be another season of joy and gladness. And then another season of pain and sadness. But instead of kind of getting hung up about the trough and the, the pain and the sadness, you know, I think where, where we start to forget is that, that we, have a se- we have seasons of joy and gladness. There's another garage sale coming. Um, and more than that, there's an eternity of joy and gladness coming. Uh, over here, <clears throat> on, our, on the wall under the mural of, this is the tree of life in the new creation, the new heaven, new earth. Uh, that's the tree of life in the Garden of Eden from Genesis, and this is from Revelation. Uh, this verse reminds us in Revelation 22 that the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. And that tree is described as this, it's, it's interesting, it's growing on both sides of the river of life, and it's yielding a crop. There's 12 kinds of fruit, and the tree is yielding its fruit every month. What does that tell you about seasons of fruitfulness? Where the vine will yield its fruit, and the ground will yield its produce, and the heaven will yield its dew. Uh, we are given a picture of a day that is coming when there won't ever be a fallow month, where there won't ever be the absence of fruit, where there won't ever be the absence of joy and gladness. Hang in there. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the promise of what is coming, a day of, an eternal day of joy and gladness. 
And we know that we live in the now and the not yet, um, this period where we, we are so grateful for these seasons of blessing, uh, times of fruitfulness. We pray that you would give us the grace to endure um, the fallow times, uh, times of pain and sadness. And everybody here in this room can relate to both. And some are in a good season and some are in a hard season. I pray that you would meet us, each of us, where we are at, by your Spirit, to give us uh, continued joy or to give us patience and encouragement and, and tenacity to hang on, to hold on until you bring blessing again. Thank you for the blessing of Jesus, the one who gives us all things and who renews us and makes us uh, men and women who love you who love your church, who love the things that you love. Thank you for coming, for not leaving us to our own devices, our own futile devices to impress you, but instead coming to love us and to give yourself for us, that all who put their faith in you could be made new. We pray this in Jesus' name.